Hey everybody and welcome to Open Door Philosophy, a podcast about philosophy, made accessible for listeners continually evolving from the primordial muck. I'm Andrew's former philosophy teacher, Derek Parsons. And vibing in the best of all possible worlds, I'm Mr. Parsons' former philosophy student, Andrew Graziano. And welcome to episode 36, where we continue looking at proofs of God. Today it's the cosmological argument, but first, we must catch up. So Andrew... Uh, we're in the depths of summer. How's it going? It's pretty good. So I just doing basically the same old thing every week, which makes summer go by extremely fast. And I was just thinking about it. My, I was talking to my grandpa on the phone and he's like, yeah, how many weeks do you have left? I was like, oh my gosh, like four weeks or something. And I was just like, that's insane. So I've been contemplating on that for the past few weeks. Anyway, how are you doing? You're you're even closer. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I'm done. I'm going back to work tomorrow. No but... way, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. What? Uh, I I go back before teachers have to. But all that saying, uh, I do have two other uh, quick little summer trips left. We're running up to okay. Oklahoma to see the the parents, and we're uh, we have a conference to go to as well. All of that before teachers officially report. So. Yeah, but I'm I'm back and and that's okay. I got things to do, you know. <laughs> yeah. You know, last week I have to I have to apologize to everyone. Last week I was complaining about the heat in Houston, which it has been <laughs> exceptionally hot. We set a record for average temperature in June and we we are definitely on the track for doing the same thing here in July. But like the entirety of the United States is burning. It's so hot everywhere. <laughs> So we're going up to Oklahoma, like I said, and my mom sent me the 10-day forecast. Holy cow. There's one day it's going to be 111 degrees in Oklahoma. I'm telling you, man, I've been looking at Oklahoma weather all my life, and none of this is normal. It's really, really quite out there. So anyway, for everyone out there who's sweating it out, you know, cheers to you. So last week we ran a couple polls on uh, our social medias on Instagram and Twitter. We we're just kind of curious what people were thinking in relation to last episode and and this one. Of course, they're silly questions. So here's one of our questions. Andrew answered this question himself last episode, but now we put it out to the world, and I will read it verbatim. It said, "No context. Which is better, to exist or not exist?" Now I'm a little concerned about people because. Even though Exist won the poll with 67%, 33% of respondents said uh, it's preferable to not exist. No, 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 no. I I can't believe it. Must have been a mistake. Must have been a mistake or uh, somebody was trolling. Yeah. Yeah, no. That's the problem with no context questions. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, this other question was even sillier. <laughs> I was just curious because, you know, philosophy is full of fancy words so this question was uh, which word sounds coolest ontological or cosmological uh, how do you feel about that one before we reveal the results i was thinking about it when i was looking at these notes and i was just i, I actually have no clue what i'd pick probably probably cosmological i think uh, i think it sounds cool i also for like so i I'd, I'd heard the word like ontology a lot 
and it took me like five years to actually understand what that word actually meant. So I'm going to go with uh, cosmological. Cosmological has a bit more flow to it, you know, as far as the sound of the word. Uh, Aunt is is kind of like a, it's a hard beginning, ontological uh, versus cosmological, which sort of has this flow to it. How do you feel so, about it? Cosmological well, too? Yeah, I guess cosmological too. Uh, but but if I was angry and I needed to just say a, a, a curse word or something, uh, <laughs> I think of the two, I would choose ontological because of that hard T. <laughs> because, funny. you know, curse words always have a hard word in it or a sharp word or a sharp letter. Or... Yeah, I guess that's <laughs> true. I don't yeah. know. I don't know if this is true, but I was, I, I think I read somewhere that like marketing firms, they'll try to if you want to create a company brand, they'll try to push you to use like some like letter that has that k sound in it. So maybe that's why the k cosmological k cosmological. Yeah. yeah. Just had to make yeah. sure it had that ring. <laughs> well, the respondent said uh, ontological 47%, cosmological 53%. So it's pretty close. Pretty close. I think both are both sound pretty cool. Like all those, I guess, a lot of philosophical words. Yeah, I mean, you, you work these words into a conversation and, and immediately everyone's very impressed. Yeah, everybody just thinks you're like very self-obsessed if you say the word ontological in a con conversation. I think. <laughs> well, all right, everyone. Hey, this is just a reminder uh, to hit us up on our social medias uh, or email us at contact at opendoorphilosophy.com. We'd love to interact with you. We'd love to read and incorporate listener mail into episodes and, of course, polls and things like that. So give us a shout at any of those places. Again, that's Twitter, Instagram, and contact at opendoorphilosophy.com. For now, I think we should uh, get on with the origins of the universe. So a few weeks ago when we were detailing or going over in our first episode of the series about philosophy of religion, one thing that I think Mr. Parsons and I both said was that philosophy of religion has a lot of intersections with a lot of different fields in philosophy and logic and also in math and other types of sciences. And I think in the last episode, we definitely covered a lot of logic. It seemed like we were just running down all these logical syllogisms. I think the first half of the episode was just an explanation of logic. And so I'm not going to say that's dying with these arguments, because a lot of these, a lot of philosophical arguments rely on logic, but we're going to be taking a, a great shift into a lot of math and science. I think in this episode, you can kind of I think guess by the title, but it would be a good indication. Cause cosmological, it definitely in the modern times deals with a lot of cosmology and uh, math, and even some like weird other stuff too a lot of physics too so i think we're going to be seeing that really cool intersection with this episode so super excited about that just as a preface let me say one more thing too yeah this cosmological argument is also very special for me because this was probably the first philosophical argument that i really got into in college and uh was probably the reason that i ended up wanting to study philosophy i just thought it was really cool uh, and had a lot of different aspects that I found fascinating. So definitely a special place in my heart. So I'm super excited to share this with everybody and uh, go over it. Oh, that's awesome. Well, we'll be sure to destroy it. <laughs> <laughs> with happy, happy to hear it. 
<laughs> yeah, I'm happy to hear it. No, yeah, this is a really cool topic. There is some, I, I often have felt with this particular argument, a little inadequate uh, because of my lack of understanding, at least on a deep level of physics, which this argument does talk about the origins of the universe. And obviously there's a lot of science on that. And some of that science eludes me. So, but all that to say, uh, it's, it's not certainly something that's inaccessible. Anyone can think about this particular topic, but it does have to do, like we said, with the origins of the universe and that particular argument leading towards the existence of God. Oh, and I guess to refresh from last week or last episode, this is an a posteriori argument because it is based on experience or some degree of experience, whereas the ontological argument last week was a priori, which deals with that which comes before experience. So this argument and really the rest of the arguments are based on a posteriori, and you, that that may seem contradictory because obviously we have never witnessed the origin of the universe, the beginning of the universe, uh, or any other universe that we're aware of. But a lot of the evidence that goes with the argument is based on experience. So, Andrew, I guess to get us going here, let's let's ask a question. It seems probably silly, but um, where did you come from? <laughs> well, that's a good question. Not, <laughs> not, <laughs> I don't well, think it's... This uh, isn't really hard. <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, I came from my parents. Yeah, I think that's 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 probably pretty simple. I hope most yeah, people can. Yeah, that's right. In. You know, uh, that's how we're going to have to have the talk. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, I think like most people mommy and daddy love Nigeria. each other. <laughs> <laughs> okay, very good. Yes, you came from your parents. Your parents got together, did a little thing. And voila, Andrew. But that begs another question. Uh, if your parents created you, who created your parents? Another, another hardball question. Uh, I guess both of them came from their own parents as well. That's right. I'm, I'm asking the tough questions today. <laughs> and so you can see where this is all going, of course. We can continue with this line of questioning. And we essentially just go back hundreds of generations you can follow this line of genealogy, not necessarily in, in reality, because we probably don't know who Andrew's great, 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 great grandparents were as far as their name and identity. But we know using our mind, logic, reasoning, that obviously it's just it just keeps going back, right? Like, And so the philosophical phrase that's often used is that uh, something can't come from nothing. Yeah, so I think we talked a little bit about this last week, but in philosophy, anything that has a cause is called a contingent being. So anything that has a cause to exist, rather, uh, has a, a, a cause is called a contingent being. And this is pretty much uh, anything I think around you. Like if, if you look at a garden, all of those plants in that garden or trees or whatever, there's going to be some cause for how it got to be there, like a seed and some sunlight and water and some bees pollinating it or whatever. So when we look around, and it's really not even unique to like an organic being either. A car existed because there was an engineer who designed it and a factory put it together. 
And so for a lot of objects, or for pretty much every object that you can see in the world, it has some kind of cause that caused it to exist. And so it's it's really not surprising, and I think it's it's not really that debated of a position. Yeah. In philosophy and in science, this is called the law of causation, right? Uh, and the law of causation comes up not just in cosmological arguments, but all kinds of arguments in philosophy. A great deal of what we know, it's an epistemological which uh, that's a fancy word that means that deals with knowledge, right? It's an epistemological argument. If we know something, that knowledge came from somewhere. There must be a cause for it. It's also connected with arguments about free will and determinism. You know, if we take an action in the world that we believe that we are freely taking that action, uh, you know, determinist will say that actually that action you're taking is determined because a law of causation. Everything has a cause. Now, that cause may be some deep psychological thing um, or environmental or something like that, but everything that exists in the universe, everything. And when we say everything, that's a big word in philosophy. Like all is a big word in philosophy. When we say all things have a cause, we mean all things. So that's the law of causation. Now, Andrew, how can we tie that back to this cosmological argument about the origins of the universe? In the cosmological argument, it pretty much takes that as one of its initial premises. Whatever exists has some kind of cause. And so usually I think the better arguments, cosmological arguments, take a look at it from a universal perspective and say, okay, the universe exists. If everything that exist had some kind of cause, then the universe was caused to exist by something. Uh, yeah, and so this is obviously one of the big projects of physics today. And of course, the theory, uh, the, the Big Bang Theory and all that sort of stuff is we are trying to get to this point, right? And the origin of the universe, like that snap that happened. You know, we know through the Big Bang Theory that all this chemical reaction occurred in, a, in microseconds that the universe began to expand rapidly. And we have all those explanations, but we don't have that ultimate cause. Like what, what was the spark, you know? That's the argument that we're going to be talking about today. And that's why I say sometimes I feel a little inadequate when it comes to some, some more sophisticated scientific explanations. I definitely agree. It can feel daunting when we're thinking about the beginning of the universe and looking at some of these scientific positions. But really, that's the cool thing, I think, about philosophy. How do I explain this? All of these scientists who are postulating about how the universe has some kind of cause, really all of them are philosophers. If they're like any, any, quantum, yeah, any quantum physicist who you'll see talk about this subject, they're all on their whatever, on their biography, whatever. They're described as a philosopher and scientist. It's definitely cool when we're talking about the creation of the universe or whatever, uh, seeing that intersection with philosophy. And person who originally created this argument, Aristotle, is just like a perfect example of that. He was using the idea, who came up with the cosmological argument, actually, he said that the universe has to have some kind of cause because everything has a reason for its existence. He was, I think, using that as a as a point to branch off on into the other sciences to learn about how things were created. 
So it's really, really pretty cool. Yeah. Can you unpack Aristotle's argument for us since it somewhat originated with him? Yeah. So it's pretty simple. I think, I think it's actually pretty similar to what I said. I think he took kind of a look around him, just like Aristotle does. And he just says, okay, I can't find anything in the world that doesn't have some kind of cause to it. And then from that, he makes this kind of broad generalization and says that the universe has some kind of cause to it. Now, here's a very interesting thing about that argument. I think this was in his metaphysics, but I could be wrong. It's really using this very cool definitional aspect of a thing, with, which Aristotle, I think, kicks off with this whole cosmological argument, because he's kind of looking at the nature of a thing, right? And he's saying that this thing has a cause to it. So it, by definition, will have some kind of cause, which sounds really complicated, but it's basically what we've just been saying. Everything has a cause to its existence. And from that, he's kind of taking a look outside of it and he's saying, well, if everything has a cause to its existence, there has to be some kind of causer because if we're just going back and back and back and back through all of these causes, there has to be someone who's first causing it. Otherwise, there's this infinite kind of loop that's reoccurring. Something caused this and then something caused that and then back and back and back and back. And we'll talk about that infinity problem in a minute. But what he's doing is he's saying, okay, well, to stop this infinite loop from happening, there has to be something that exists definitionally that just exists, that has no cause. And that's how we come up with this idea of a necessary being. I think we talked a little bit about that last week. A necessary being is something which necessarily exists, which necessarily by definition has no cause, uh, which is pretty cool. And we can talk about this a little bit more later, but I think that's He's definitely laying the groundwork for some huge thinkers, uh, these Arabic thinkers who take his works and Thomas Aquinas, who we'll talk about in a minute. But that's definitely, I, I think, unless there's some other Eastern authors or something on this topic, philosophers on this topic who I just have no knowledge of, I think he was the first. And here's what I find fascinating about this, of course, is that Aristotle had no knowledge of you know, the origins of the universe like we do today, obviously. And so he's really just using his reason to come up with this explanation. We know quite a lot now about the origin of the universe. We don't have the ultimate answer, but quite a lot about it, far more than Aristotle does. Yet the argument remains the same, despite yeah. all that scientific knowledge. And, and didn't Aristotle call this uncaused cause I want to say sometimes it gets translated to like prime mover. Yeah, something like that. Something like prime mover. You're never going to hear me not uh, want to harp on about Aristotle. So uh, you're speaking to the choir, Mr. Parsons. <laughs> but let me say this real quick, uh, because I think it's it's definitely been a problem throughout the century. So I want to just make sure it kind of ends here. We can easily say, okay, that's cool, Aristotle. You came up with this cool argument, but you also thought that uh, Earth was like the center of the universe. That's kind of like a, it's just a kind of flawed way of thinking. Just because he believed in some things that were wrong doesn't mean his principles to, his principles to the arguments are incorrect as well. So we need to separate that idea from the first mm. step. Yeah, a lot of people will talk about the fact that Aristotle was totally wrong about the geocentric theory. 
Copernicus comes along and turns that on its head. And then all of a sudden, you know, everything that was based on Greek science for thousands of years is, you know, and, and largely on Aristotle, you know, it's wrong. And then, yeah, but that, that doesn't invalidate uh, Aristotle's thinking. Not at all. And that's, that's going to be these later 19th century philosophers like Anscombe and, uh, and McIntyre, McIntyre especially, who says, you know, this is the flaw of the Enlightenment that uh, you just threw away Aristotle because you found one thing that was wrong. So we don't like to make those mistakes on open door philosophy. And uh, <laughs> That's right. Especially since it's Andrew's patron saint of philosophy, <laughs> Aristotle. <laughs> okay, so yeah, that's that's the basic thinking with the cosmological argument, right? Every As we observe everything in the known universe from our experience, everything comes into existence and goes out of existence. There's a beginning and end to everything, to our lives, to the universe, to plants, to animals, everything. And there's a cause to all of that, to every bit of it. And so you have two options here, right? With the beginnings of the universe, you either go to the beginning of the universe and say, okay, something caused the beginning of the universe. And so we must figure out what that cause is. Or like Andrew said, we get into this sort of infinite regress idea where, you know what, the universe has always existed. It just has never not, not existed. Um, and then it's turtles all the way down. But it seems that at least with physicists today, as well as philosophers, that it seems like the universe, you know, unless it's special in some way, uh, must have had a beginning. Now, I am kind of curious, like what's on the other side of the Big Bang? That fascinates me. But as far as our experience, experiential knowledge goes, everything begins, everything ends, and the universe is uh, held to that same standard. So then we must come up with a with an answer for what that thing is. So let's jump over to the Islamic world and Islamic theologians of the Kalam school in somewhere between the 9th and 12th century that the argument was had evolved uh, with a lot of philosophers during that time, this is usually just called the Kalam argument. Again, the Kalam is, a, is an Islamic school of theology. So this is the, the syllogism incredibly simplified. So here we go. Premise number one, whatever exists has a cause. That's law of causation. Premise number two, the universe began to exist. Conclusion, therefore, the universe had a cause, and we call that cause God. Now, this is a very simple argument that gets elaborated on throughout the centuries, as we'll talk about soon. But there's the Kalam argument. Yeah. I, so this is, this is especially what this Kalam cosmological argument is particularly what drew my interest to philosophy. So a uh, special place in my heart, especially this one. Like Mr. Parsons said, it's definitely been expounded upon throughout time. It's probably the most for Christian apologetics, I think it's probably the most argued for, or I don't know the right word there, love this argument, and they write a lot of books about it. So I think it's, it's in my opinion, probably the strongest argument uh, that I've seen. I don't know if you want to talk about this one more now, Mr. Parsons, or if you want to run down the list and we can talk about a modern understanding of this argument later. Oh, I don't know that I have anything more to say about it other than, than that's the argument. And it, it's a, a syllogism that is valid. There are some questions about the conclusion that we could say, such as, well, why do we call that cause God? How do we get there? 
So you might say perhaps it's not sound, but it's definitely valid and uh, something that future philosophers, it's valid enough, we'll put it that way, that future philosophers are able to take it and build upon it. What most philosophers object to is the second premise, the universe began to exist. And I think the idea about the fact that a universe is not infinite is primarily the point of what makes this, like this is the, the special sauce of the Kalam cosmological argument. The idea that the universe is not infinite is really what makes it special. Uh, so what most philosophers who argue against this say that the universe is infinite, which will be commonly responded with an infinite is only a mathematical concept. It's not one that's exists in reality. And so I think this is quite fascinating because this is where we're going to start seeing a lot of science and math talk. But I think I'm I'm at least on the side of an infinite cannot exist, an actual infinite. And the way that I think about this, and I think it's quite funny, imagine you have like this closet and inside the closet, this is where it gets kind of whack, is an infinite amount of gummy bears. And so you open this closet and I just want to try to conceptualize like an infinite amount of gummy bears. I don't think an infinite amount of gummy bears could even fit in an infinite, you know, an infinite spaced closet because they were just, it would just be continuing and continuing. And I don't know, I think it just seems quite impossible. This is backed up by a lot more mathy people than I, but yeah, that's just the way that I think about it. I like to think in gummy bears. Mm. Gummy bears aren't my favorite candy, but <laughs> <laughs> but uh, boy, an infinite amount of gummy bears would. <laughs> yeah, it would be a good time. I'd have a stomach ache for days. <laughs> definitely following on the aristotelian tradition i don't know if he was influenced by any arabic scholars but definitely by aristotle is thomas aquinas who's this very great medieval thinker and of course it's very important for him to prove the existence of god and so he's one of his arguments is a cosmological argument uh, which i'm guessing he's got straight from aristotle and he's using the cosmological argument because he rejects the ontological argument, I think because he thinks it's too logic-y. But I think also he thinks that the way that we can know God is not such that could be proven definitively by an ontological argument or I don't know. I Basically, he doesn't think we have enough a priori knowledge to uh, of God to justify our belief in such an argument. So, right, yeah, there's there's some importance to experience in all of this. Yeah, that's kind of why he's using cosmological argument. So again, continuing from the Aristotelian tradition, basically Aquinas, he's looking around, kind of like Aristotle did. He sees that things are in motion, and he's wondering why things are in motion, which is kind of funny that I'm thinking of it because I I don't. I don't know if like the Newtonian physics thing of everything that has moved has like a cause or something. So I don't know. So he's looking around and seeing that things in motion have kind some kind of reason that there are in motion. So I'm thinking of those Newton balls right now. I think Mr. Parsons has another example, but I'm thinking of those like Newton balls. For those to start moving, there has to be some kind of force that starts those, uh, that kind of starts that click clacking to start them off. And so he recognized that he notices that I guess the world is kind of in some kind of motion or things in the world are in motion. 
And he says, okay, well, if everything that is in motion has some kind of force that causes it to go in motion in the first place, uh, then there must be, you know, some kind of cause. And that cause is God, because if there is no cause to the motion, then how did we all get into motion? This is commonly known as the argument for motion, right? Yeah. And God, God is this kind of first mover who starts this initial impact of motion in the universe. So it's pretty cool. So, so this comes from what's usually referred to as Aquinas's five ways. And it's a pretty famous part from his Summa Theologica. And, uh, and, and essentially, in a page and a half, Aquinas very eloquently makes five arguments for the existence of God. So this is one of them. We have you know, an argument from motion. We have an argument from causation. We have an argument based on contingency versus necessary. But they all kind of revolve around the same type of thinking, right? So whether it's we're talking about something in motion, like if I kick a soccer ball, you know, obviously I'm the cause of that, but there's something that caused me to do that, both physically and perhaps mentally, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that's that's the argument from motion, from causation. It's just simple cause and effect type stuff, which you can use the same old example with the soccer ball or the Newton's balls or whatever. And contingent, you know, the, the argument about contingency, that everything exists contingently. Uh, in other words, it could have or could not have existed, you know, so so something must always exist, you know, and that thing is God. So so these are uh, these are really famous syllogisms. He doesn't lay them out as syllogisms necessarily, like formally with premises and conclusions, uh, but certainly you can make syllogisms out of his arguments. But yeah, this is Aquinas, and he kind of takes it a step further than than Kalam, where he begins to sort of bring in more what we might identify as at least Newtonian physics. Thomas Aquinas is so awesome. Definitely, definitely someone we will be talking about in the future. But uh... let me read a sort of formal uh, syllogism. Uh, I'll use the causation one, and this way people can kind of get exactly how he moves from these premises to a conclusion more formally. So, so, so here we go. Everything in the universe is subject to cause and effect. Again, that's based on our experience. That seems to be true. We can't think of anything that doesn't have a cause of some kind, right? C is caused by B and B is caused by A and then so on and so on, right? This chain of causation. If this chain of causation was infinite, then there would be no first cause. But if there were no first cause, there would be no other causes and effects. But, but there are causes and effects in the world. Therefore, there must have been a first cause, and that first cause is God. So that's how logically the, the, the argument works. So whether we're, t- again, whether we're talking about cause and effect, or we're talking about contingent arguments, or we're talking about uh, motion or something like that, at the end of each one of these, we end up with, and that cause is God. And maybe this is a good time to do this. What are some criticisms about this particular argument? I always hate this argument, but I think it's one that we should address because it's it's kind of a popular one. And it's the idea that, okay, let's say that what Aquinas said was true, right? Let's just accept his arguments for the moment. They're not really proving any type of God. They're just kind of proving that there's this first cause to the universe. And that's maybe God, 
the way that we think of him or the way that Aquinas thought of him or whatever popular conception of God. It also could just be something random. It could just be like a, a random force in the universe that's evil, or it could just be some kind of nameless, personless, uh, non-caring being. Right. Uh, so it just kind of proves this, what we would call a deistic God or mm-hmm. something to that extent. And so the reason that I'm not really a fan of that is I think it's, well, at least when we're talking about Aquinas, like I'm rather fine with that when we're talking about Kalam, but it's also expanded upon. But the reason I think when people look at Aquinas and they see these five arguments, it's pretty cherry picked, right? Like you're looking at a page or two of the Summa and you're saying, okay, Aquinas, you're not proving anything about God, but the rest of the book, you know, yeah. there's a proof like that follows about what long. God is like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we have to remember what this argument is. It's just a proof about why God exists. And so this is something I noticed in uh, when I was taking this class, philosophy of religion, great class, like like I've been saying, but I think I think there's two things when we're thinking about philosophy of religion that we can think about. There's two questions in philosophy of religion that we answer. The first is, does God exist? Yes or no? Once we answer the question, does God exist? Then it's time to say, what are qualities of God? What is God like? Uh, or what does this being, that this prime mover being look like? So I think we have arguments for both. And rarely do those arguments really intersect with each other. Yeah. Because I don't think, you know, it's not their purpose. It's not their function to prove both. So I think that's a common criticism in, in my response. Yeah, no, it's good. I mean, you're right. Like all of these arguments lead to some conclusion that just says, and that thing is God, or we call that thing God, or a prime mover. Yeah, this isn't the type of theistic God when we when um, that a lot of people think of that cares about you, is involved in your life, you know, has some grand plan for you. This is just a... Uh, a faceless being uh, that has ultimate power, and uh, and not a, not necessarily a theistic god. But yeah, I mean, your response to that is is right. Read what Aquinas, read the Summa Theologica, and then have and then have that conversation. It's not that it's a bad response or a bad criticism. It's just an uninformed no. one, because again, you can like I said, this is like five or six paragraphs. It's like a page and a half out of the entire book. So, yeah, that's a good. That's definitely a common criticism and uh, and a good response. Thanks. So David Hume, eighteenth century Scottish philosopher. Although, if I recall, he wrote most of his philosophy in France. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> but honestly, one of the great minds of the eighteenth century. Definitely. Sure. Oh yeah, yeah. Definitely known as as a skeptic of sorts and. He was very skeptical of these types of arguments, uh, not not necessarily about God per se, but arguments about causation and critical of inductive reasoning. But anyway, he, here's his basic criticism of it. And there's some debate as to whether or not Hume believed in God. I don't think he did. But, but anyway, it's a mystery. So he says, uh, we can't know that every event has a cause. Like, we just can't know that. We can think we know that. And based on our experience, it seems like we should know that. But if you're going to be super skeptical about this, we haven't witnessed every single thing that 
happens in the universe. And perhaps there are some things that we have had in our experience that deals with that deals with cause and effect that maybe there are some things <laughs> that is uncaused. We can call all these types of, of things into question. Let's see the whole thing. I use this example in class. I usually set a chair in the middle of class and talk about inductive reasoning, right? And I say, okay, this chair has held my weight when I sit in it for the past 580 days or whatever. So I will make the assumption that when I sit in this chair today, uh, it will also hold my weight. Now, I know in my head that there is a possibility that for whatever reason on this day, the screws may fail or the joints may fail or something and the chair falls apart underneath my weight. But I don't actually think about that. I make an assumption that because of all the data that comes before it, that this chair will, in fact, still hold my weight. And I don't even think about it. I just assume it to be true. And like, obviously, this is very helpful uh, way of thinking. I mean, good grief if we thought about, will the chair hold our weight every time we sit in a chair? You know, we'll never get through the day. So it's very helpful thinking and makes a lot of sense. But, you know, Hume's like, okay, so we we can't totally know especially when you start thinking of something like the beginning of the universe you know we're saying uh, all of this is based on experience well we didn't experience the beginning of the universe we've experienced lots of things and we base our logic on the beginning of the universe about the things we've experienced and witnessed but we have not witnessed anything remotely like the beginning of the universe and so how can we make uh, claims about the beginning of the universe when we have so little uh, experience with it? Now, that's 18th century. So obviously, we have some more scientific understanding of that event. But nonetheless, so, so that's David Hume's uh, argument in a nutshell. I kind of went off on that. <laughs> no, I think it's great. And he, he actually provided a great tradition for later philosophers in the 20th century to argue kind of a similar point. One of my favorite, least favorite, but favorite, if that makes any sense, philosophers. I like him, but I disagree with him. Basically, J.L. Mackey kind of takes that Humean line. He, t- he takes human. He says that we can envision some kind of an event without some kind of a cause. And because we can envision that in our head, it, it's possible that ex- it exists. And that's from some of Hume's other works, but I think it's still... A good, an interesting Hume position, but uh, it's been argued against. But we don't really need to go into that, I think, any anymore. But yeah, Hume's great. Well, one last person to mention before we get into some of the larger criticisms of this theory is uh, our old boy Richard Swinburne. So we're going to talk about contemporary real quick. Swinburne says a cosmological argument is the best explanation for God's existence. Uh, Since God's existence isn't logically provable, he doesn't think God's existence is logically provable. But it's probable, given the premises, uh, God's existence becomes more probable because God's existence is the best explanation for why the universe exists. So this is a really interesting argument for me because Swinburne just outright says you, you can't rationally or logically prove God, but you can talk about probability of God and that the probability of God is really great in his mind and that this cosmological argument only adds to that particular probability. Um, so anyway, uh, that's that's Swinburne, Swinburne's take on it. Yeah. It's kind of funny because I think that 
Swinburne, I think he's like kind of a proponent of the cosmological argument to an extent. Like I think he's written something about it before. At least I think he's known he's known for it. So it's kind of funny to me that he's saying, "Oh yeah, this is this is a, a the one of the best uh, explanations." I've contributed some literature to the subject. Yeah, Swinburne's great. Just for listeners, real quick, this this line of thinking I just mentioned comes out of his book, The Coherence of Theism, which is dense and and massive. But there's a wonderfully accessible book by Swinburne called Does God Exist? I mean, it's like a hundred pages. And I would recommend that for for readers if they are interested in Swinburne. He goes over all the major arguments in a much more accessible way. Uh, the coherence of theism, which I think comes in three parts. I mean, I'll be honest, I haven't read the entire thing. Good heavens. Um, but, uh, you know, if you're a philosopher of religion, you got to do some weightlifting with yeah. that particular book. That's awesome, though. That's a lot of fun. A lot of a, a good summer reading list for next summer. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> And I guess I'll just mention one other book since since we're on the topic. There's a book that came out, mm, I'm going to say like within the last 15 years. Uh, it's by Jim Holt. It's called Why Does the World Exist? When I was really getting into philosophy of religion, this was one of the very first books I read. Uh, it's pretty cool. He goes around England and United States and other areas and interviews philosophers about this question, why does the world exist? And a lot of times, you know, you do have some religious answers to that question. He talks with physicists, philosophers, atheists, all of them, their explanations of this. Uh, he actually, a, a chapter is devoted to Swinburne. He uh, interviewed Swinburne in that book. But so anyway, it, it's a pretty cool book. And I also think it's, uh, it's, it's very accessible and it's done in a way that's not like a guy just talking about philosophy um, you know, it, it, it frames it in this like, hey, I'm traveling around the world. And I'm trying to find the answer to this question. And these are the people they talk to. And gosh, you talked to someone at the University of Texas, too. And I can't remember who. Huh. But anyway, that's a cool book. If you're kind of interested in, in this uh, cosmological business that we're talking about. Let me put one more down while we're at it. Uh, William Lane Craig's uh, The Kalam Cosmological Argument. I think that's where the arguments kind of resurrected, written in 1979. And so I think that's where the arguments kind of resurrected. I could be wrong about that, but I think that's when the argument started becoming more popular in the 20th century. And uh, it's really fascinating, really cool book. It's very short too, and he's a pretty good writer. And so it's it comes off very easily, very easy to read. And he does a great job of explaining the topic of infinites. <laughs> Well, let's get to some of these uh, counter arguments and and deal with them a, a bit. You, you already mentioned infinity a little bit. Do you want to expand on that a little more? The the criticism is kind of like you know, at, at, well, I don't know what the criticism is necessarily. It's like has something always existed? Like it's it's the idea of like okay, well maybe it's one of these fundamental things you kind of got to decide on with this argument. You know, has the universe always existed? Or did it have a beginning? No, 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 no. So I think that's great. That's a great way to frame it. Yeah. So can the universe be infinite? Like the second premise of the Kalam cosmological argument is that the universe began to exist. So if we hold that the universe was infinite, then it didn't have to become to exist. And so I think this is this is a very popular argument. I think some physicists kind of disagree with it. I think there's some like quantum physicists who think that when we look at the subatomic level, 
we can kind of disagree with the thing, the ideas that uh, things that are fundamental to our universe have to have some kind of cause. And so I think that if that's not true, some things might be able to exist for infinity, blah, 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 blah. Okay, sorry, I forgot where I was for a second. But so I've heard a few objections to it, primarily from William Lane Craig. He disputes the idea that um, in actuality, so it's called an actual infinite, the idea that infinity can exist anything apart from math um, is impossible. So he thinks that infinity is just kind of this mathematical concept. And it's really interesting how he does it. So he says that up until like the end of the 19th century, everybody just agrees that infinity is just this concept that is purely mathematical. And then he says that we just kind of accepted the idea that infinity is something that can actually exist. And we just kind of accepted it without any kind of argumentation. And then it just kind of somehow came into our scientific understanding. And so he was going to criticize all these physicists who believe that the universe was infinite. And I will refer people who are more interested in this subject to William Lane Craig's. Uh, I think he might have a paper that's like a shorter version than the book. And then people who are like super interested in set notation, I think he has an argument in set notation about why an infinite can exist. So yeah, it's very cool. But I think I think it's kind of a strong argument against it to say that uh, the concept of infinity can actually exist. Because if I try to imagine it, like my gummy bear example, it just seems kind of absurd. Anything <laughs> yeah. that's anything that's like in this. So I'm going to toss this back to you, Mr. Parsons. If yeah. the idea of an actual infinite cannot exist, then what about God? Why can God uh, infinitely exist? Well, so that's another one of the criticisms. We're talking about experience, observation, and the law of causation. And I said earlier, you know, we use that word, all, all things are caused. Yeah, why, why does God get off the hook here is another criticism. Why is God the one thing, right, that is uncaused? You know, why is, why is God immune to this particular law of causation? That seems to be logically a, a very valid uh, question to ask. Uh, valid, not in the syllogistic uh, <laughs> understanding, but it's, it's a good question to ask, right? Uh, why is God immune to this law of causation? If we're going to place such emphasis on the law of causation, and again, guys, law of causation is big time in so many areas of philosophy, uh, not just not just cosmological arguments. So it's important to kind of put this law of causation to some scrutiny, which of course is what Hume's project was. So. I don't know. What, what's the, what's the counter-argument to that counter-argument, Andrew? I think one way of thinking about it is saying that God is outside of this kind of space and time concept that we have while the universe is not. So I don't know how we can... I think that is one possible answer. It might not be the one that's the most satisfying to people. I think that's one answer. I think another answer that might be stronger is saying that first, I guess, who who said God is infinite in this kind of quantitative sense that we're looking at it when we compare to the universe. So I guess a principle of like uh, non-equivocation would be the philosopher's term. Like we're using two different types of uh, understanding when we say infinite. So 
the quantitative side would be okay the universe exists in it's infinitely large it infinitely exists it's infinitely stretching whereas we're not necessarily the same saying the same thing about god when we say god might be like infinitely caring or infinite i don't like i don't even know if we've ever said god is infinitely old but i i I think i think that's definitely like one of the responses (laughs) it's saying okay like when did we say this yeah and if you go back to two episodes ago when we first introduced philosophy of religion we're talking about the omni attributes of god you know um, omnipresent is one of those attributes and and then we're you got to figure out, well, exactly what do you mean by omnipresent? You know, when you talk about God and time, is God in time? Is he on our timeline? Or is God in all places at, at all times, the exact same time? Or is God outside of time? Uh, you know, and, and then you can also start thinking about like, well, exactly what is time? You know, if you're floating around somewhere in the galaxy and you're not here on Earth, what is time? Um, and yeah, it gets really, really abstract and out there. But, but some of some of this counter argument, what you're talking about, Andrew, is is kind of what a person might might think about for themselves when they think of omnipresent. How exactly does yeah. God inhabit time? Yeah, but I definitely would say that check out if you're interested in this topic, check out William Lane Craig's Kalam cosmological argument because I think it's really fascinating. And then if you're interested in checking out the idea against uh, an actual infinite. I think there's this very famous uh, paradox of Hilbert's hotel. I've seen a few YouTube videos, I think, describing it like a TEDx video or something. So if you're interested in those, definitely check that out. All right. One more argument real quick or counter argument real quick. So a lot of atheists will roll this one out. Some scientists will roll this one out. And I think it deserves to be at least addressed. It's kind of interesting. Does invoking God as the uncaused cause actually solve anything? Like for some scientists, especially physicists who are interested in the origins of the universe, it's, they'll say, isn't this just lazy man's answer to the problem of the origin of the universe? We don't know what the origin is. We're working on it. Big Bang Theory, all that good stuff. But isn't it just kind of giving up? Like, oh, you know what? God did it. And then you don't have to worry about it anymore. Uh, that's definitely a criticism I know Dawkins has made. Uh, so so what do you say to that one, Andrew? I don't really see it, to be honest. I mean, sure, I guess it could be lazy saying that, you know, we don't know the cause, but I guess the, or, or we're just saying, so the argument's something like, we don't, we're just kind of giving up and we say, okay, the thing that created the universe, we'll call that God. And then we'll just stop there. Is, am I right with that? Yeah, they're saying, it sort of puts a halt to scientific inquiry. If we have an answer, we should continue to look for that answer, right? The origins of the universe by plugging in God, just kind of like giving up. I think there's a few answers for that. First would be something similar to our kind of contingent versus necessary being discussion that we had earlier. So this is my first point. The first cause, I think, seems to be something that's necessary, that has no cause before it. So I think it's going to be kind of hard to prove that with science or something. And so I think that's going to be just be difficult. So yeah, you can go ahead and look for it, but I don't really know what you'll find. So maybe sure in that regard, maybe we are giving up. Secondly, though, I think it's a trying to be more scientific argument against what we were talking about earlier with the saying that the the cosmological argument just is kind of not proving what God is. 
if we're just saying, okay, the universe has this cause and we're just labeling this cause as X or God or something, whatever that is, essentially we're just saying, okay, in this argument, we're proving that this necessary being exists and we're calling that necessary prime mover God. That's all we're doing. So if they want to go out and find out more about what this necessary cause is, because I guess we're all assuming that this cause is necessary, go ahead and figure out more about it. But it's still a necessary cause, right? That's what I have to say. I, I don't know if you have any feelings about it or any criticisms with my ideas, but yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I think those are good responses. And I'm kind of a toss up on this one as well. I, I, I kind of like, like, okay, well, that's that's kind of a, a legit argument or criticism. But also at the same time, isn't that a lazy argument on the person's part who's doing the counter argument? So, you know, <laughs> we're all just lazy. We're all being lazy. Okay. Well, do you have anything more on this or, or can we move on to the saint thing? Name that saint. I think as this series goes, all of this is just an introduction. So I'm sure in the future we will spend more time looking at Thomas Aquinas's arguments, five ways of knowing arguments in more detail in Kalam, cosmological argument in more detail. So this is just an overview. If you're super interested in any one of these topics, we're happy to delve more in them in the future. So just let us know on one of our uh, emails or uh, social medias, and we'll ha- be happy to block that out. Yeah, Andrew's absolutely right. This is uh, this is definitely just scratching the surface of these arguments. Like, you know, I'm putting this together. This is something we spent like a week on in school, you know, just this argument. Um, so, you know, here we are doing it in about 50 minutes. You know, I've been, I've been putting Andrew, uh, on the hot seat here with all these counter arguments and we're going to continue that here with, with a new segment. We're going to head over to the game corner and play a little something called name that saint. Okay, guys, welcome to the game corner. Uh, it looks like we have a lot of tabletop games here and, uh, Nice big table we can play things on. So since we've been uh, knee deep here and all the religion stuff and Andrew being a, a good Catholic and me being a sort of lackadaisical, loosely affiliated Protestant, thought we'd play a little game called Name That Saint. Hey, this is how this is going to work. I'm going to read a description of a saint and we'll see if Andrew can guess it. And then Andrew will read a description and we'll see if I can guess it. And so we'll do five rounds of this. And, uh, and, and at the end, whoever has named the most saints uh, will be labeled sanctified. <laughs> okay, here we go. Are you ready? Okay. Here we go. Round yes. one. This person is the patron saint of France and was instrumental in leading the French to victory in the siege of Orléans during the Hundred Years' War. Oh, oh my gosh. I can't. I th- I'm fairly confident I know, too, but it's I'm blanking out on it. Is it, she's a woman, correct? Yes, that is correct. Is it, is it a female saint? I definitely know. She's a very strong woman. Uh, saint Joan, Saint Joan of Arc. That's right. Good that job, Andrew. Correct? Okay. So this is a third century martyr who is known for being a patron saint of travelers. Oh. This one might be tough. I think, yeah, I think this tough. is a very that's popular, very okay. popular Catholic. <laughs> So see, this is the problem. The I don't have Catholic this reference. Circles, huh? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So I think like I, 
I think Catholics like have a pin or a medallion on their like cars. Sure. So I'm sorry. I, I didn't know. That's this. okay. This is, this is how it goes. <laughs> um, so this person's name sounds like the name of the religion of Christianity. Uh, St. Chris. St. Saint Chris, Saint Christopher. Yeah. Christopher? Ding, ding, ding. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. man. St. Christopher, the traveler. All right. Here's another one. Are you ready? Round two. All right. It's, sure. it's, it's one zero. You're, you're up. Okay. A Roman officer. This person was made a saint for being put to death for not recanting his Christian faith. But here's the big, here's the big clue. He is also the patron saint of England. Oh, gosh. Uh, let me just take a wild guess. Okay. No, I'm not going to get this one. I, I don't know any English saints oh. other than... Are you familiar with the battle uh, cry? Wait, 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 oh, wait, wait, oh, 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 oh. wait, 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 Saint, I'm going to go with Saint, uh, Saint Anselm. I don't oh, think that's right, but... It's a good guess. So have you ever heard the battle cry uh, for England and Saint George? Saint George, okay. That's yeah, right. Yeah, the Saint white George. cross, right? That's white, right. White and red cross. That's right. You knew I had to he throw He slayed the dragon. That's right. That's right. Okay. Yeah. All right. Hit me. Okay. So my next one's probably pretty easy, uh, but I had to do it. I had to do it. So uh, this was an Italian Dominican friar and theologian uh, who's known as a doctor of the church. He's known for being a very prolific writer and a student of a long, long student of Aristotle. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. You're going to kick yourself. I am. I'm going to go with St. Augustine, but that's probably not right. No, it's St. Thomas Aquinas. Wait, ah! Yeah, St. Thomas Aquinas. Yeah, St. Yeah. He was okay. a Dominican? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he's a Dominican friar. All right, my turn. So it's still 1-0. You. Your favorite. favorite you. Yeah. Okay, here we go. This person was popular during the Black Death due to the legend of his survival of torture he is often depicted with arrows through his body. Oh gosh! All the all the no. Black Death people uh, prayed to this saint. Saint John, saint John? No, it's not Saint John. Saint John's not a martyr. No, I don't know who it is. Okay, it's Saint Sebastian. Saint Sebastian. Okay, yeah, I should have gotten that one. I was I was thinking about including him. He's also another, I think, popular popular Catholic saint. Yeah, I should have. Darn it. Okay. Yeah. I still feel like you're going to pull this out because you got the Catholic advantage. In communion, Catholics like pick a saint, right? A patron oh, yes. saint. Um, and so this is my patron saint that I chose, which is a very dumb reason. So don't think it's anything like cool or anything, but he's my patron, patron saint. He is mentioned in the New Testament. So he's a brother to one of the very famous apostles, and he's also an apostle himself. I can oh, give you some more info. Okay, I think I got this. All right, is okay. it Saint Bartholomew? No, no, no. Let me give oh. you one more. Let me let me give you one more hint because uh, okay. he's. I think you'll get it. So um, that might help. So he he was a fisherman. In yeah. The Bible. Okay. I'm trying to I'm trying to think back now. You know, fishers of men. They were casting their nets. All this good stuff. I'm just going to say John. It's probably not John. Let me, let me give you one more hint because I think you'll get it. <laughs> You're really trying to help me here. His brother is one of the founders of Catholicism or is the founder, I think. Well, that's like Peter, isn't it? Yeah. Peter's the founder, right? So he's the yeah. brother of Peter? Yes. I don't know. <laughs> Peter. Uh, I'm trying to think of the apostles' names now. Oh, boy. My Bible school teacher, you'll be so frustrated with me. 
from like elementary school. All right, go ahead. It's St. Andrew. Oh, geez. Oh, that's, hey, (laughs) your patron saint is in your own name. (laughs) Yeah. So I I thought I I thought I would, it would be really funny to have my patron saint, like my extra middle name be Andrew too. I picked St. Andrew. Okay. Well, there it is. All right. That's round three. So, uh, so round four, it's still one zero, Andrew. Round four. Here we go. This person is the patron saint of lost causes and has a children's research hospital named after him right here in Houston. St. Jude. Oh, yeah, that's easy. All right, 2-0. Okay, I think you'll get this one, though. So okay. this, this guy is very, very, very famous. He has his own order uh, of monks named after him, and this order was extremely controversial when it was started, and I think he had a stigmata on his hands, and mm. I think he's the patron saint of animals. Oh, yeah. I definitely know this one. That's St. Francis. Yep. Yeah. All right. I'm on the board. Yeah. You know, a fun fact, I was born in a hospital named St. Francis. Really? Yeah. That's awesome. I'm sure there's no other hospitals out there named after St. Francis. Okay. All right. Well, it's 2-1, Andrew, and we go into the final round here. I'm excited about this one. Here we go. This person is best known for her, her ecstatic religious experiences and is a doctor of the church. She is also one of the no patron saints of Spain. Is it Saint? Oh, I have between two. Is it Saint Lucia? Is it Saint Teresa? I'm going to need your final answer. Ecstatic experiences. I'll go with Saint Lucia. Oh, no, yeah. It was it Teresa. Teresa. Yeah. Oh gosh. Teresa of Avila. Okay. Yep. Okay. Oh okay. man. Yeah. I was, after I said Lucia, I was like, yeah, that's definitely Italian. So I don't know why I did that. <laughs> oh, that's okay. oh, that's true. That's true. Okay. Well, I can tie it here. I don't know what we're going to do if I tie. We'll go to the bonus round of Popes. <laughs> this one's pretty tough. So this is definitely my hardest one. So okay. I was going to do St. Jude, but uh, since that one was called off the board, this one is a very famous saint at, in the last 10 years after she was canonized. Uh, she's also a doctor of the church in recognition of her holiness in life and the originality of her teaching. She's known as a mystic and visionary. She was a German Benedictine abbess, and she would lock herself in her cell and write. Yeah, she'd have these visions and lock herself in her cell, and she would write uh, crazy music. Um, so she's the patron saint of music. Oh, jeez. She had her first vision when she was five. Let me see if I can give you another. No, no, no. I mean, that, uh, to be fair, that's plenty of, of hints. Um, I mean, I don't think this is right, but I'm going to say St. Margaret. No, 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 no. It's St. Hildegard. Oh, uh, Hildegard. Oh, man. Yeah. You know, I pride myself on knowing the mystics, and I know that <laughs> name. Gee. Okay. Oh, well. I'm glad you know it at least. I do. I was, I was I do. worried. I was worried that she would be too obscure. I mean, I knew St. Margaret wasn't right. That was one of the saints that spoke to Joan of Arc, but, you know, it was a stab in the dark. <laughs> I didn't think she composed well, That music. was a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you win. <laughs> uh, we should have put some stakes on the table for, like, what you get if you win. Yeah. But uh, but at least for now, you 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 have the honor All right. Well, there you have it. Name that saint, Andrew Wins. Okay, everybody. Well, we hope you had a great time today listening to us talk about the cosmological argument and that heated match of Name That Saint.
We'd love to know what you think of the cosmological argument. So if you want to hit us up on those social medias uh, or email us at contact at Open Door Philosophy, we'd love to hear from you. Definitely. Had a lot of fun today as well. You can also talk to us on our social media and follow us and engage with us in more polls. We'll definitely uh, put some more out there. Uh, So if you want to do that, you can just look Open Door Philosophy on Twitter or Instagram. Hey, we'd love to uh, thank Kevin McLeod for the free use of his music. It's so darn cool. And uh, gee, where would we be without it? So thank you, Kevin. Thank you very much. And remember, uh, when your life is in need of some philosophy, the door is always open. Sure is. See you next time. All right. See you next time.